You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Donna Nelson. Donna, thanks so much for being with me today. Well, thank you for having me. Donna, we're going to talk about your your beautiful show, uh, which is still up currently at Thomas Urban Gallery in Chelsea, and it's called Refiguring One Painting at a Time. And it's um, a survey of work from 1977 to 2022. So to begin with, there's a number of things I want to ask you about these, these, these beautiful works that are the kind of paintings for me that it's hard not to touch them, you know, like when, you're, when, you're, when you see a painting that's, that's, that has such an incredible surface. I mean, that, that's how it, it struck me. But, um, but we'll get into that shortly. But, but let's just talk about the title, um, Refiguring, because this, yes. this is uh, uh, about how you, about your process in some ways, the, the title Refiguring. Is, is that correct? Uh, well, it's kind of, yes, it's about my process, but it's about the idea of the, fig, you know, since Greenberg um, and the minimalists, there was always the idea that you, you know, abstraction eliminated the figure, the presence of the figure. And so the title Refiguring has to do with the idea of, you know, of having the figure figures in the paintings and also addressing the fact that figures look at the paintings. And that's the reason I install my paintings the way I do and have two-sided paintings. It's that the, hopefully they're being animated by whoever's looking at them. So I think that uh, the idea that, you know, abstraction eliminated uh, the figure, I, I really disagree with that. And so I want to, you know, uh, acknowledge, acknowledge the, the person that made it, me and my family and the people that are looking at the paintings. So that's what refiguring means to me. <laughs> well, I, I like that, and and um, and that's exciting, really, for the for the viewer. And in a painting like Fisherwoman, which maybe we should begin with, um, this is a, a recent work. Uh, it's a very large work, and as you said, it's also uh, or just mentioned, it's a two-sided work, um, which has a figure in it uh, on one side, and the other side seems. Uh, not to have a figure in it. Now, you know, I really loved this particular painting, which was so sculptural because, um, you know, you, you walk around it, of course, and you're looking at both sides. And, and at least for me as the viewer, I'm trying to reconcile both sides, right? How does one side relate to the other? And, um, you know, is there a side I prefer or, or what am I looking at? And, I had a, a kind of strange and wonderful sensation that, that what seems to be a figure on one side is, is perhaps looking through and, and we're seeing her, her gaze almost on the other side. Uh, you know, I love that of, idea. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea too. I love the word. So, um, Why not? <laughs> so, so, so maybe that's not exactly how you, how you meant it, but to me it was, it was like this kind of, multi-dimensional way of, of how do you perceive a, a person in space? How do you perceive a person who's 
who's also doing an action. You know, typically right. we're looking at very one-dimensional views of that, right, and paintings and photographs. But, um, but yeah, that's how I read that painting. So is that, is that entirely different than how you intended it? No, no. I mean, all of the two-sided paintings, you know, the abstract paintings too, they're made, you know, by flipping the painting from one side to the other, oftentimes taking the canvas off and flip, literally flipping the canvas. So, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense that they're very interrelated, the two sides, even if they end up looking very different at, as like that painting does because in the end I had a model. I, the way that painting happened is I made the abstract side first and it has kind of repeated horizontal you know, horizon lines, and that was made on milk crates um, face up, and then the back, the sky, the feeling of the sky, and to me the ocean, that just happened from the paint soaking through. And then when I saw that, I wanted to see a head in front of the sky to like, um, you know, make that illusion, like, fix, to fix that illusion. And so I got a model, and I made the figure out of uh, muslin. And yeah. so they're very interrelated, always. And that's, that's what I like about the two-sided paintings. And I, the, the thing is, if I make one side, something's going to happen on the other side. <laughs> And, and then I have to respond to that as the artist, and that's why it's fun to do that. <laughs> right, because they talk about paintings talking to one another, right? Sometimes the way curators curate. But in, but in this mm -hmm. sense, the, the sides of the canvas are, are talking to one another. It's almost like a conversation right. you're, you're moderating. That's right. That's right. I'm just following along what's happening with the paint. <laughs> um, so, uh, so there's... Yeah. There's one other, the, the, the night of the 25th of May, um, also a very recent work um, that has two sides that are very different. And, and, in, and in this one, it's what, what, what we just spoke of isn't, isn't quite as clear. On one side, there's abstractions that look like glyphs, that look like um, they could be letters or forms. And the other side looks almost entirely abstract. This is... Uh, a different kind of dialogue, it seems, happening here than the one we just spoke of in, in Fisher Woman. Oh, yes. Well, the front of that painting with all the paint on it, that originally had uh, cheesecloth, like the, the glyphs are, 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 you know, cheesecloth drawing. And uh, the back of that painting was originally the front, and I, that painting was worked like crazy, and I work outside, so it was worked over maybe about a month or six weeks. And uh, then I, uh, on the front of the painting, I ended up tearing off the cheesecloth. But the, uh, you know, the images on the back, the cheesecloth is still there. But it, the thing of it is, is the paint soaks in all around those uh, kind of letter-like forms, and it soaks into the other side. So the uh, dark side was originally the front. And that's I see. A, that's so the, so, so, so the cheesecloth, right, right, right. And the cheesecloth, which I didn't understand initially, um, was on both sides. But this is a process 
of, of affixing that to the canvas, and that's, and that's what allows the paint to absorb and then create these different kind of reactions with the other side. Is that part of the, the function of the yeah. cheesecloth? Yeah, the, the cheesecloth are like little dams. And then I, have, I use fluid acrylic with a, a wetting agent in it, which uh, you know, allows the paint to go through the canvas. And so I pour the paint around the cheesecloth, and, it's so, and then the cheesecloth is a dam that masks you know, certain shapes, and then the, the paint soaks in around the cheesecloth. And so I have cheese, in that painting, I had cheesecloth on both sides. So, so what happened is, like I said, the painting was worked for a long time. And it, it uh, you know, it ended up the way it did, but I took the cheesecloth off the front. And, um, and the front has a lot more, like, uh, tar gel. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more shiny, the front. But actually, the reason I called it the, 20, the night of the 25th of May is that that's when I finished it. It was a beautiful, really warm, like your perfect May night. <laughs> and it was like a celebration. I had a glass of wine to celebrate that I finally finished the painting. And I so like that. And that, that was I mean, so, so there's also a relationship with the outdoors, right? You said you, you're working outside. So, oh, yeah, you know, these, these, aren't, these aren't landscapes, these aren't plein air paintings, although maybe they are, but, um, but, but why outside like that? I mean, it sounds like a wonderful place to work, but almost everyone that I've interviewed, of course, is in a, a studio that's, that's crammed with things. Um, yeah. Well, I wash why the outside? canvas with a hose. I, I wash, I, I repeatedly uh, soak the canvas with paint and then... I, I oftentimes wash it off with the hose so that there's just like thin veils of color and then there, that builds up over a period of time. And, uh, you know, then I'm adding other like acrylic mediums around the cheesecloth. And uh, so I have to work outside. And I, a lot of my paintings are very much in response to the weather. And... Uh, that's the way I well, work. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, the weather, of course, yeah, and the light and the season plays a big role in your work. You can only work certain hours, obviously, if it rains or snows or certain seasons. That's, right. Yeah, as you're saying, that's an integral part of, of what's happening on the canvas. Absolutely. A lot of times I'll leave the canvas out. You know, I will let the rain rain on it, stuff like that. You know, I have to be careful because one time I was talking to a student on the phone and I was standing in my house and I see a painting, my painting flying by and it got very windy. <laughs> so I had to run out and catch it. <laughs> and, and the weather doesn't, doesn't rot the canvas at all because it's gessoed or painted or... It's all acrylic. It's all acrylic. I mean, it's, you know... Um, it's stain painting. It's all water-based, so it's not like it's you know oils or turpentine. Then that's that. Those are the things that rot canvas. And once it dries out, it's fine. Well, it's 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 wonderful talking about these. I, I want to move backwards a little bit because there's a really a survey of a number of uh, interesting works here from from your career, and it's it's kind of interesting to start where you are now, which seems 
so sort of uh, almost explosive and, and exciting and, and, and full of energy. And, and when we move backwards, it almost seems that energy is much more uh, contained in a way. In, in, the, in the image, Surveyor's Lunch, that's from 81. We're, we're going back, um, you know, 30 or almost 40 years here. Um, this is a very different kind of work, although it almost reminds me of Fisherwoman in terms of we're looking at the back of a figure who's looking at a landscape, but maybe that's a, that's a stretch to, to uh, link no, those I, two. No, I think it's related for sure. I mean, this one is, is also this kind of uh, outdoor work, right? It, it, it looks almost like it's taken, it, like it is taken from, from life, it is, but it's, um, uh, well, the house is so much stylish. It's made up. Okay, it's made up. made up. It's made up. It was painted in a loft in New York City. It's a portrait of my father, and it's kind of done just out of my head. And uh, it's a portrait because I'm from Nebraska. So, and then we moved to Indiana when I was like seven. And so it's kind of on the top, it's kind of Nebraska, and on the bottom with the big, huge logs, it's kind of Indiana. But uh, it's all made up. And uh, I wanted to do... I, I was doing abstract paintings in the 70s, and uh, initially they were really big, you know, colorful paintings, and I even showed, you know, showed them in 75, Rosa Esmond Gallery. And I, then I just decided that I just was, you know, I felt like I was prematurely developed, like I really shouldn't be making paintings that were such finished kind of abstractions. And then I started making those little gray paintings, just trying to think what in the hell abstraction is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. a very important question, still is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then at a certain point, I really wanted to uh, allow figures into my paintings. And I doesn't like I was a figure painter. painter. I'd never been trained that way. And, but I just wanted to try that. And so I started, I started with that portrait of my father. And, you know, this period, it's interesting going backwards because you, you went through um, several, several stages in, in your work here. And, um, Mike, if we go back even further to the, to the work, which is abstract in, in yet a different way, uh, Untitled 1978, for example, which is a much smaller work, uh, black and white work, um this this again is um there's there's figurative work in there as well uh, but some of these also look like figures we're also even in this work in between worlds i mean we're t to talk about what does what is abstract what is abstraction these works right. seem to seem to speak that that language as well yes i mean that's the big question because, you know, Jackson Pollock, I mean, I was just at the National Gallery this summer, and there's some intelligent curator there that um, hung Lavender Mist, which is a huge abstract painting, between two figurative paintings, and they were all done by Pollock within like four, four or five years. And Pollock said, I always start with the figure. And basically that was outlawed by Clement Greenberg. <laughs> and and so it just became like a you know 
like religion that you, you, if you were an abstract painter, you had to be quote-unquote pure. I mean, it's just ridiculous kind of thinking, actually. And it really dominated, you know, the 70s. And, uh, yeah, so, I, I mean, I really, I don't like rules. I don't like rules. And so I, I uh, you know, I, I fought against that one. And uh, that's why my work is the way it is. And that's why I do all kinds of paintings, you know, all the time. And I just well, let you the know, painting say what it should be. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, to talk about that pushback a little bit, um, you know, in, in the line that, um, because I think this was also in the, in, in the 60s and 70s, the idea of uh, capitalist project of repetitious products that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the, the thinking that you were talking about, the rule-oriented thinking, but also you're talking then about commodification, right? The idea of, of turning out painting after painting that was oh, yeah. similar, you know, the idea then even, which is still somewhat predominant, a consistent body of work, or, and, and obviously one that fits in collectors' homes. Um, why I'd like to kind of compare that to the present because the art world has changed so dramatic, drastically from 1977 to 2022. Now there is not just an art market, but the art market at this moment, post-pandemic, seems to be in, in, in a kind of a hyper state of, of yeah. kind of capitalist acquisitions, right? Fairs are yeah. everywhere. I, you know, there's o- over a thousand galleries in New York. There's an enormous amount of paintings of the kind you're talking about repetitious products, though they may be beautiful, right? There's, we yeah, see uh, a lot of, a lot of essentially assets being made for extremely wealthy people to, uh, not to be too cynical, but to, but to hide their money, right? Something has happened dramatically in terms of capitalist effect on, on art in the span of, of this show, right? 77 to 2022. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's not my job to, like, blame everybody else and call them, you know, to say that they're, they're, you know, they're boring and repetitious just to sell paintings. I, I you know, I just want to do what I want to do because life is short. And the main thing, you know, that interests me is to do the paintings that interest me. It would make no sense, particularly for an old woman like me, to be trying to to address the marketplace. My paintings don't sell that much. I do sell paintings, you know, but I'm not like a big seller. And so I just don't care. And so it, to me it's just I care as much about the art market as I do about the Russian oligarchs and their yachts. It's the same thing. I don't care, you know. And... Um, I think it's very important to do what interests you, you know? Mm-hmm. I have a lot of paintings yet to do, and I'm pretty old. So I have to get busy and do what excites me to do because it's really fun to paint. It's really interesting, and that's like something money cannot buy, <laughs> you know, and right. to be really engaged. Yeah, absolutely. So, So in terms of... I mean, your sense of enthusiasm is really palpable, and, and is that is that the same kind of enthusiasm you had, or has it grown since you were 
making the works you were doing in 78 and 77, these kind of more uh, minimalist abstract paintings that were uh, mostly untitled. Well, no, I've always been, I've been painting since I'm a kid. And I am always been very, very enthusiastic painter, but in, I had, I actually destroyed most of my work from the 70s. And then I started all over again with those small gray paintings, just trying to think via painting what abstraction was. And there's actually there's one painting in that show that's very important that has the curve, to me, that has the curved line and it's in the corner and it's next to the, the two women talking under the tree. And I felt literally like that curved line, you know, that I literally turned my head away from the frontality of the little abstract painting and looked out the window and saw a tree and two figures. <laughs> That's how I thought of it. And so uh, I, I've always been enthusiastic, but actually, I actually quit painting for like about a year in about 1980 because I, I felt like, you know, I felt like I didn't know if I could do something that was really my own. And so, but then when once I quit painting, I knew I was a painter because I felt so bereft, you know, when I would come home and the studio is just cold and dark. I just felt so empty and, you know, then I knew I was a painter and nothing but a painter. So it was okay to quit for a bit. <laughs> I like that, and I, and um, and that's so interesting to hear. And the painting that you're talking about, which yeah, looks almost like a distorted window. It's two lines that are crossing one another, and then and then yeah. two of them curve down. Um, to talk about that a little bit more, because that sounds like a very important painting to you. Are you saying that's because that was a shift in your practice, or that was a shift in your understanding? It's a shift in thinking abstract? about yeah. what a painting is. Because, uh, you know, of course, I, I was young in the time of, of, of Greenberg and the time of Kenneth Nolan. Oh, those are painted, you know, Kenneth Nolan and, and Stella, of course. And, uh, you know, it's, you have to work through, uh, you know, work through your, your time in order to do something that is your own. So I had... I had to try to think about abstraction because I was so, it was such a strong, um, you know, influence as the time, in the time I was growing up, you know, and I had a lot of love and respect for it too, you know, because I've always been a painter. So I had to, you know, that was a very hard shift to make. But the painting allowed me to make it because literally the line, I'd made, I was made, also made other large, larger paintings where I was trying to get some sense of space because if I could get just a little bit, just like the space of a glance, just a little bit of space into the painting so it wasn't, it wasn't completely flat. I mean, those gray paintings, there's just a little quiver of space in them, just a little quiver of space. And the glance, my own glance, is what allowed me to, to, put, to then 
start to work figuratively again because the little bit of space really, it's, it's hard for me to explain, but the little bit of space is just like, it's like a wind. It's like, it's like the ability to turn your head away from those like frontality of like those Stella Black paintings and stuff, you know, where they worked so hard, the artist to get rid of all the space. And, and that's why Judd, he loves Stella and the black paintings because, you know, he, he, the stretchers were really thick and it was very, very flat and they got rid of the space because if you want to know the kind of conversation that I heard when I was very young was uh, like that the, the space of painting was like a lie and a, like a dangerous bad thing. But in fact, the space of painting is like thought in a body. And it's, it's, um, it's like thought in a body. And, um, you know, it's a contradiction. And that's what painting is, a contradiction. You, you know, in our flesh we think. <laughs> and that's a contradiction. And so that's what painting is. That's why painting is so interesting to do. So, you know, but I had to figure out in my mind how to contradict all of these big art people that were saying, oh, space and painting, that's, that's a bad thing. That's, a, that's like a lie. <laughs> that's, that's so well articulated and, and, and so interesting to, to hear from you. Um, I, I, I want to ask you one more question before we go, which is off topic, but I'm always curious uh, what, you're, what you're reading. What are you looking at these days? Well, I just, I'm just rereading a very good book, Landscape and Power. Uh, you've probably heard of it. It's pretty well known. It's edited by W.J.T. Uh, Mitchell. And uh, it's, it's got all of these essays about, you know, well, like it says in the, in the title, about the relationship of landscape paintings, you know, to power, to who owns the land and all of that stuff. So that's what I've been rereading just recently. Well, Donna, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. You and congratulations on this on this beautiful show, this this wonderful survey. There's links here thank so you. people can, of course, learn more. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Okay, thank you for for asking me. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.